asked me if I knew that song, and no, I didn't. Of course, that doesn't mean that everybody doesn't know it. Pretty close, but not everybody. Tonight, we're returning to our series, Knowing What I Believe. And we've come to the place that we're going to be looking at the nature of the church difficult to deal with a subject as broad as the nature of the church. Understand that books have been written, series of books have been written about the nature of the church. How much detail do you give and how much do you assume that people know? Well, after we get through, you can tell me whether I made the right assumptions or not. There is a temptation to make a comparison between the temple of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. Of course, the temple in the Old Testament was a special place of God's presence. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 14, it says, But in the place which the Lord chooses, there you will do all that I command you. At the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. In the New Testament, the Lord chooses as his vehicle the church. Church, in this sense, is not a particular geographic place. In Matthew 16, 18, we read, And I also say to you that you are Peter... And on this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to define for you tonight what this rock is since we spent a whole message on that as we went through the book of Matthew. But to understand that it's not Peter that's being built upon, it's his confession. It's his uh, confession that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior and that it is Jesus who is the rock. There's one thing I think that we learn from our Church of Christ brethren, and that is about the nature of the church. You will note it just by driving by one of their buildings because they draw a very sharp distinction between the church building and the church. The sign in front of their building will say something like this. The Oak Hill Church of Christ meets here to make the distinction that this is not the Oak Hill Church of Christ. This is the building in which they meet. They understand that the building is not the Oak Hill Church. The church is not made up of wood and concrete, but it is made up of people. When the tornado swept through our town back in 2010, the thought occurred to me before I could get here to see what kind of damage had been done to the church. I had that in the back of my mind. How horrible would it be if our church were destroyed? And then I had to stop and step back and realize, well, that storm can't destroy 
First Baptist Church. It can destroy the meeting in which, the building in which we meet, but it can't destroy <clears throat> the church. So I want to spend a little bit of time tonight <clears throat> looking at this. First of all, I want us to look at the meaning of church. The word church comes to us from the Greek word ekklesia. That word is, in fact, made up of two words, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call. So it means some, something that is called out of. Specifically, it comes to mean <clears throat> called out ones, called out ones. It has the idea of a group that is called out for a purpose. Now, you will find if you read that the word ecclesia simply meant a group assembled. It didn't even mean a group assembled for a religious purpose. It could be a group assembled for a political purpose. Of course, we have taken that phrase and used it for our own. Some, uh, what we're really talking about is people. And my, there are all kinds of people in churches, are there not? Take, for example, the notorious Tate family. You've heard of them. Some of you may have heard them as the Tater family. This is the Tate family. The chief of the, uh, the clan is old Dick Tate. He insists on running everything in the church. His brother, Rotate wants to change everything. There's Aunt Agitate, who has a knack for stirring up trouble, and her husband, Irritate. You may be married to him, I don't know. He always wants to lend a hand in any argument. The next generation of Tates has its own characteristics. There's Hesitate and his wife, Vegetate. They would just soon wait till next year. There's Aunt Imitate, who would love to create the first really generic church. There is Devastate, Tate, who uh, is constantly announcing that the church is doomed. But my favorite is her husband, Potentate because he feels he can lead the church out of any trouble it may be in. In reality, the, the term church is only used twice in the gospel, both in Matthew, first in the <clears throat> passage that I already read to you, Matthew 16, 18, and again in Matthew 18, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus gives instructions on how to handle <clears throat> believers who are engaged in sin. He says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. I say unto you, whosoever sh you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whosoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whenever we <clears throat> speak of the church, we often do so in two 
different senses. The first and most common sense of the word is the local church, which is a local body of believers. Ninety-two out of the some 115 times that it is used, it refers to a local congregation. The second sense of the word refers to all of the redeemed of all the ages, believers of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And as I already said, it, it's really easy to get <coughs> kind of trapped in this. I know you've never made this statement, but I make it almost every day. I'm going to go over to the church. We still, although we know, we still refer to the church as the building. And the church in the New Testament <clears throat> never refers to the building. The church building is but a tool for the church to use. It's not the church. The second thing that I would share with you tonight is the message of the church. 1 Corinthians 1.23 Paul capsulized it for us by saying, but we preach Christ crucified and to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. <clears throat> as simply as we can put it, the message of the church is about its founder. And the founder is Jesus. It's a very simple message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of forgiveness. And it's a message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul said, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of of reconciliation. There are some things that really are distinctive of the church. We call them the marks of the church. There are three things which are true, thank you. Number one, it's members. It's members. Baptized believers is what we're talking about here. It seems odd, at least to me, that we have to make the distinction that to be a member of a church, one should be born again. Doesn't that kind of follow that to be a member of a church, you ought to be born again? But then if you stop for a moment and you think back over the course of your life, if you've lived very long, you've come across some people perhaps that have identified themselves as members of some church, that you really had to wonder if they were saved, if they were born again, because of the way that they lived or the way that they acted. The problem of having unsaved members is nothing new in the church. It's been a, a struggle all down through the recorded history of the church. In fact, we find that problem even in the Old Testament you remember when Moses gathers up the people to leave Egypt, they had not only those who were Jews, but he said he had a mixed multitude. Well, a lot of the problems that he had in the wilderness came from the mixed multitude. Those are the people who came along with the Jews but did not necessarily have any affiliation 
to Jehovah, the God of the Jews. The New Testament makes it clear that only saved people can be baptized. Only saved people can be invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. And only saved people can join and be members of a church. It also intimates that in order to be so, they must be individuals who on their own have enough cognitive ability to know and recognize Jesus as their personal Savior. I say all of that to say that precludes then infant baptism, which brings individuals who are merely infants into the church on the supposition that somewhere down the line they're going to make a profession. You've already included them as a part membership of the church by this baptism. It's members, baptized believers. It's ministry. While there are many things that a church may do, there are a couple things that I think a church must do. One is the preaching of the Word of God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the Word. A true church is a church which preaches the Word of God. Preaching the Word of God means preaching the whole counsel of God's Word. That's the reason that I, as a preacher, teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it forces me to preach on those things that I might rather avoid and it robs anyone who might want to say you're preaching to a specific problem that's occurring in our church or in our lives right now preaching is so important preaching the word of god in season out of season when convenient and inconvenient when it makes you popular or unpopular it's preaching that brings conviction for sin, preaching which is centered on the person and work of God, preaching which exalts Jesus as the only Lord and Savior, preaching which stirs the hearts of the hearers and causes them to desire more of God, this preaching which elevates the soul and causes Christians to want holiness, preaching which calls the lost to get saved and calls the saved to reach the lost. It's preaching which keeps the saints in the path of righteousness. Preaching which comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Preaching which never compromises the truth just because it's inconvenient. It's preaching which starts and ends with biblical revelation. Preaching which knows nothing of political correctness and is anchored in the rock of ages. It's preaching which seeks to expose the truth of God's word to God's people. Where there is this type of preaching, all is well. Where this type of preaching is absent, there is no church. Secondly, an observation of the ordinances. Catholic Church recognizes seven ordinances, and I couldn't even name them all to you at this particular point. 
but as Baptists we recognize two. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel a great number of ceremonies and feasts and sacrifices, but to the church, God only gave two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the means by which a newly saved person can publicly identify themselves with Christ as their Savior. The New Testament records no infant baptisms. Baptism was reserved for those who understood the gospel and received God's gift of salvation. In fact, the word baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, and it means to dip, to immerse, or to submerge. The Lord's Supper is the other ordinance. It was instituted by the Lord on the night before His crucifixion as a means of remembering the meaning of His sacrifice. There is no specific command given as to the frequency of that observation, but the Apostle Paul says, as off as you do so, do so in remembrance of Him. A true church, then, is one where those two ordinances are observed and done regularly. And then there is its makeup. It's, this is its structure, what its organizational structure and the offices within that structure. There are two things to consider here. One is church government or polity, and the other is the offices of the church. First, the church's system of government or polity. There are different kinds of church government, depending on the denomination that you're looking at. As Baptists, we hold to congregational rule. That is, we believe the Bible teaches that God has invested the body of believers. Every local body of believers is invested, invested rather, as a whole with the authority to make decisions concerning its own ongoing ministry. The offices <clears throat> that make up the church are two. There is the office of pastor and the office of deacon. There are <clears throat> three words in the Greek New Testament which speak to the office of pastor. One is the word episkopos. It is the word we get episcopal from. It means overseer or bishop. I kind of like that title. If you'd like to call me bishop, that'd be fine. In fact, preachers kid each other sometimes saying, yes, I'm, I'm the bishop of Bologna. Got a nice ring to it. The second word is the word presbyteros. Obviously, you recognize that one, Presbyterian. It is a word that is translated elder. So you have a word that's translated <coughs> overseer. You have a word that's translated elder. And there's a third word that it <coughs> is translated as shepherd or pastor. Each of those three titles, though, speaks to one of the pastor's areas 
of responsibility. Not three titles, not three offices, but three descriptions of one office. As an overseer or episkopos, the pastor is charged with leadership. That means he is to oversee the overall ministry of the church, giving direction as he seeks direction from God and God's word. As as a presbyteros or an elder, the pastor is charged with teaching. And as shepherd, he is responsible for caring for the church as an under-shepherd or steward who is responsible to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. There's another side to the coin, and you were afraid of that, right? The church has the responsibility to support and honor and follow the leaders that God gives them. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they will watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. First office, pastor. Second office, deacon. The word deacon comes from a Greek word diagonos, which means to describe a household servant in the New Testament. The office of deacon is an office of service. It's not an office of oversight. It is one in which, like the office of pastor, demands high standards of those who would qualify. Deacons are there to take care of some of the physical ministry, physical needs, Acts chapter 6. The first deacons are commissioned uh, to wait tables to take care of the widows. Deacons are also to strive for the unity of the body. There's a clear injunction that's found in Acts chapter 6 where there was a division because uh, of the distribution of food and the men between the two groups of people in the church. One thought uh, the other was having an unfair advantage, and probably they were getting an unfair amount of uh, care. And so to restore the unity of the body, the deacons were put into place. A pastor who has a fellowship of deacons who are committed to this biblical directive is Truly a blessed man, and I count myself as a blessed man. Deacons are also called upon to support the ministry of the pastors. In the New Testament, they supported the ministry of the apostles, doing uh, some of those day-to-day ministries which allowed the apostles then to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word, things which today pastors are still charged with accomplishing. The fourth thing is the mission of the church. mission of the church obviously has not changed. We have been commissioned with the Great Commission in Acts chapter, I mean in Matthew chapter 28, in verses 16 through 20. It says that the <clears throat> disciples went up into the, the way into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus appointed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just a little bit later, just as the Lord is ascending into heaven, he gives his disciples, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, these words. But you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in carrying out the mission of the church, we are to reach out to others regionally. He talks about, I want you to start where you are. You're in Jerusalem. I want you to reach out to the area closest to you. That's Judea. Then I want you to reach out into the area that's next closest to you, and that is Samaria. And then he says, into the uttermost parts of the earth. To reach out to others regionally, then we are to attempt to make a difference nationally. And finally, we're to reach out globally. Obvious, a part of great part of that is our mission outreach program. We'll be having our <clears throat> global outreach Sunday again. And is it March this year, James? April. I'll still be here. In April, that's the time when we ask the Lord to tell us how much we, He would have us to give to the missions for the year. That's how we know how many missionaries we can support, how many we can take on. And uh, certainly you don't have to wait till the new year. We'd invite any of you who are not presently involved to become involved in supporting missionaries. In the next few weeks, maybe even as early as next week, I'd like to take some time to tell you a little bit about our Philippine trip. Um, obviously, those of you that were here and heard Brother Arnold got a little bit of a taste of that. Uh, but there are some exciting things going on there. Our missionaries are doing a great work. And one of the things that I want to share with you is Brother Fidel Raka. Rakal, our missionary, one of our missionaries in the Philippines, uh, they're building a church building, <clears throat> and I mean they're building the church building. The men of the church, he, he and the men of the church, have started at the ground and dug the holes for the concrete. They've poured the concrete. They've laid the block. They're now to the place that uh, they're ready to put the roof on, and this is something that they cannot do. Uh, but <clears throat> they're doing a great job. I want to be I'm looking forward to showing you the pictures of what they've accomplished already. The fifth and final thing is the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is to see that each member is edified. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Secondly, in the same verse, equipped. Each member needs to be taught how to use his or her gift. 
The church is a body of believers wherein the members use their gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12 outline that truth. Upon conversion, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and is given at least one spiritual gift, which he or she is to use within the body of Christ for the building up or edification of the body. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has an ability to do something. And if everybody is not using that gift that they have been given, then there is a part of the body that is not functioning. We are to be edified. We are to be equipped. And we are to be encouraged. Part of the ministry of the church is mutual encouragement in the Lord. You don't need to come to church every Sunday to be beat to a pulp. You need to come to be encouraged. Yes, there are times when you have failed, but when you have failed, you need to understand that you can shake off the defeat, you can rise up from the defeat, and you can go on to success. Just a short glimpse at what the church is all about. I'll step off in deep water here and tell you I believe in the universal church in the sense that I believe that every saved person is a member of the body of Christ. However, those who would say, I'm a member of the body of Christ because I'm a believer, but I I have... I'd have no use for the local church. I'm not a member of any local church. I don't think that can be. God does his work through local congregations. And if you are a member of the body of Christ, as he would have it to be, you're a member of a local assembly of believers. It is through the local assembly of believers that Christ does his work, not through some nebulous, mysterious, mystical body out there that nobody can see. What the world needs to see is real, genuine, down-to-earth Christians who live up to what they say they believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, and thank you for loving us. Loving us even when we mess up. And we do that a lot. At least I do. I mess up a lot. I fail often. Father, I I thank you for the realization that when I do fail, when I do mess up, that I can be forgiven that I can be restored. And that your word is full of examples of people who were not perfect, some of whom messed up bad, but went on to be used greatly by you. Father, we want to be used greatly by you. We want you to gain honor and glory out of our lives. So Lord, help us to live up to the name Christian. 
Help us to live out our lives in the face of our neighbors and friends so they might truly know what a Christian looks like and how a Christian ought to behave. Father, if there's anyone here tonight that needs to make a decision, then Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a short